Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. Can anybody see me behind this? I'm wearing three-inch heels, I promise you. Right, I'm going to talk to you today about uh, modern-day syphilis. So I'm going to talk about the bacteria, uh, a little bit about the clinical disease. I am not a doctor, so please don't come and show me your rashes afterwards. I won't want to have a look at them. Um, The position of syphilis in Scotland at the moment, how we diagnose it, how it's treated, and then I'm going to end up with a little bit about prevention. So it's a bacterial disease. It's called by Treponema pallidum, subspecies pallidum. Um, it's a spiral bacteria, which is quite unusual. Most bacteria are either round or rod-shaped. Um, it causes the disease syphilis, and it is only found in humans. There are some animals that have a syphilis-like disease, but this particular bacteria will only infect humans. There are other similar species and subspecies that cause other diseases, such as yours and Pinta. They're not found in the UK, they're found in Africa and Asia and South America. They're not sexually transmitted, but with the advent of travel, people are often exposed to these, and because they are spiral bacteria, they can cause some confusion when we come to diagnosis. And, of course, we have other spiral bacteria in the UK. We've got Borrelia burgdorferi, which causes Lyme disease, which is a tick-borne disease. And we have Leptospira, which causes Viles disease, which you can catch from rats. Again, they're not similar clinically, but they can cause confusion in diagnosis. So the clinical disease, syphilis is a really complicated disease. It used to be called the great imitator because symptoms could mimic lots of other different diseases. There are different stages to it and it can affect any organ, any system in the body, depending on where the bacteria has been replicating. It's broadly classified as acquired or adult syphilis, which is the secondary, which is a sexually transmitted disease. Um, That is further broken down into different categories, and it can be congenital, so it can be passed from mum to baby, and again, that's categorised as well. So acquired or adult syphilis, um, following sexual contact, the bacteria will invade the skin and it will replicate locally. There's about a three-week incubation period, and after that you get a single ulcer, which is called a chancre. And unlike something like herpes, which can look very similar, this is completely painless. And unlike something like gonorrhea, it doesn't produce any pus. So it's actually quite easy to miss. And I'll show you some photos in a moment. Um, But its I've tried to keep photos to a minimum. I didn't realize quite how big this screen was. So (laughs) I apologize for putting a six-foot penis on the screen. But there you go. Um, And that that also will be wherever you had the sexual contact. Um, It then disseminates into the bloodstream, and you get something called lymphadenopathy, which is just a posh word for saying your glands are up. So you might feel a bit poorly, you might think, oh, got a bit of a cold, maybe I've got the flu, but it's not. Um, But the thing with syphilis and the, the reason it causes so many problems is after a few weeks, the ulcer and the feeling poorly will just go away. Obviously, it hasn't gone away, but the symptoms go away. So this is uh, some typical ulcers. So this is on the shaft of the penis. Again, I apologize. 
this one is just below the vulval area. Uh, this is an endoscopic photograph of somebody who's got a syphilis ulcer in their rectum. And, of course, you can get it in the mouth as well. So, although, I mean, the one on the penis is pretty obvious, but the rest of them, you could quite easily miss them. Um, they're not causing any pain, there's no discharge, so people either don't notice them or they look at it and think, mm, it's not hurting, I'll just wait and see if it goes away, which it does. But, of course, it doesn't go away. So one in four people who don't get treated at the first stage will go on to develop secondary syphilis. And this can be just uh, a few weeks to a few months after the initial ulcer. And the first symptom you will probably get is a widespread rash that involves the palms and the soles. And there are also sort of slightly rarer symptoms as well that we don't see very often. So this is a sort of typical rash. And again, it looks quite dramatic, but it's not itchy. So it could be easy for people to just think, well, I'll leave it and see if it goes away. Um, classically, you will get it on the palms of the hands and the soles of the feet. This is not exclusively from syphilis, but it is quite rare to get a rash in those areas, so that is a bit of a red flag for any doctor that might be examining you. Uh, alopecia, this, actually this chap um, presented to his doctor with no other symptoms at all. He, he wasn't aware that he'd had any sexually transmitted infection, and this was the only symptom he had. And what's happening here is the bacteria is replicating in the hair follicles and causing the hair to fall out. And it's described as a moth-eaten rash, which I think is a perfect description, um, as opposed to classical alopecia, where you get very discreet bald patches, and that's an autoimmune disease. So this looks very different. And eye problems are becoming more uh, seen more and more because it is more common if somebody's got syphilis and they're co-infected with HIV, they're more likely to develop an eye problem. And that is, is something that's happening more frequently. But again, like the primary syphilis, um, you can ignore the symptoms and in a few weeks' time, they will just appear to go away. But of course they haven't. So it then phase goes into a latent phase where you see no symptoms at all. The bacteria are still replicating, but they're doing it in the background and you won't be aware of what's going on. And the latent phase can last decades, 10, 20, 30 years or more, before you then develop tertiary syphilis. So again, about one in three people who don't get treated for secondary syphilis will go on to get the uh, tertiary side. And depending on where the bacteria is replicated will depend on the symptoms you have. So this is called a gummer, and about 15% of people develop these. And when you look at pictures of syphilis, and if you look at the books that are in the foyer, you will see quite hideously deformed people. And they love to take photographs, sorry, do drawings and paintings. And they were probably suffering from gummers. And these are big, painful, necrotic ulcers. They really are quite horrible things. They can happen anywhere in the body, but they tend to happen on the skin or in the bones, and I think uh, Mona mentioned people saying that the bones were rotting, it would have been one of these. Um, about 10% of people will develop cardiac problems, and again, the symptoms will depend on where the bacteria are replicating. If they go into the heart valves, you can get endocarditis, uh, but most commonly they affect the aorta, which is the major uh, artery that comes out of your heart. It will become very enlarged, it will become friable, and it can rupture, and you can get an aortic aneurysm. But probably what most people think of when they think of tertiary syphilis is neurological. Unfortunately, only about 7% of people will develop this. And the symptoms can be wide-ranging, depending on where about in the brain or the spinal cord the bacteria is replicated. You can get stroke, dementia, seizures, 
eye problems, speech problems, you can go deaf. Um, but probably the most common thing is tabes dorsalis, and this we used to be called um, paralysis of the insane, which is a very unpleasant name for it. And what's happened is the, the bacteria have replicated in a certain part of the spinal cord that affects your proprioception. And proprioception is your ability to know where you are regarding your environment. So in order to stand up straight and in order to walk, we need three things. You need your sight, you need your balance, so your inner ear, and you need your proprioception. And people with tabes dorsalis have lost the proprioception. So one of the tests they will do for it is called the Rombard's test. And if you make somebody stand up and they've got the legs together and they've got the hands by the side of the body, that's, that's fine, we can just stand up. So if you lose one of those two senses, your body can make up for it. So obviously blind people can stand still, they can walk perfectly normally. They've got two out of three, they've got the balance, they've got the proprioception, and your body compensates for the rest of it. So people with tabes dorsalis, they've lost their proprioception. So if you ask them to stand upright, they're fine, because they've got the balance and they've got their sight. If you then ask them to close their eyes, they will fall over because they've lost two out of three. So that's one of the tests they do for tabes dorsalis. They all have a very strange walking gait as well. It's Because you, you've lost the sensory bit of the lower half of your body, it's a bit like if you walk downstairs or upstairs and you get to the top step or the bottom step and you think there's another one and you take an extra step and you get that horrible feeling where you're not sure where your feet is, that's what they're suffering from. Um, and so they have quite a high stepping gait and a very flat-footed gait. So it's quite classical of tertiary syphilis. So congenital syphilis, um, the disease depends on whereabout in the pregnancy the woman gets infected. If she has syphilis before uh, she gets pregnant or if it's caught very early in the pregnancy, it's more likely to be a very severe disease. It can cause spontaneous abortion, the baby can be born stillborn, or it can be very, very premature. Um, it crosses the placenta quite easily. Again, like adult syphilis, it's split into early and late. Uh, early phases if they are born with symptoms or developing in the first couple of years and late if it's past two years. But again, very similar to the adult disease. Um, the most common thing for babies to be born with is something called snuffles, which sadly is not as cute as it sounds. This is where the bacteria has replicated in the baby's mucous membranes, so eyes, nose and mouth, and it is a profuse, watery, bloodstained discharge, very, very unpleasant for the baby. Um, they can be born with skeletal abnormalities. Um, this is a classic one called saddle nose, where there's a depression in the nose. That's typical of congenital syphilis. And they can have dental abnormalities. These are called Hutchinson's incisors. They've got a distinctive um, curved appearance to them. Fortunately, very rare in the developed world nowadays. So syphilis in Scotland. All these figures are taken from Health Protection Scotland. They've got a very good website if you want to go on and have a look at it. Um, the... Let's see if this works. Yeah. So the red figure at the bottom is cases that we don't have any information on. The pale blue line, which is just there, is uh, women diagnosed with syphilis. And the hatch blue line is heterosexual men diagnosed with syphilis. But the black line is men who have sex with men. And that is by far the biggest cohort of people that are catching syphilis nowadays. These are figures from the last 10 years in Scotland, but it is mirrored in England and probably the rest of Europe as well. 
And there are lots of reasons for it being that cohort of people. Um, and I am generalising here. Please don't get offended, anybody. Uh, men have sex with men tend to be more promiscuous. They have more partners. And anal sex is a more risky um, practice because the tissue is more likely to tear and that allows bacteria and viruses to gain entry to the body. Um, there has been a rise in the last few years. If you see about 2014, 2015, the figures have gone up quite dramatically. There are a few reasons for this. Uh, one is the advent of dating apps and the ability for people to have casual sex a lot more easily than they used to. Um, there has been an increase in casual drug use, which makes people more uh, sort of risk averse. They don't, you know, they'll they'll do things that they maybe wouldn't if they were in, you know, had all the faculties about them. Um, there has been uh, quite a rise with, again, alongside the dating apps, which is in some ways a good thing. There is something called serosorting. So a man who is HIV positive will seek out other men who are HIV positive to have unprotected sex with. Um, and that's quite a good thing because it means that it's not going to put anyone else at risk. But of course, if they're having unprotected sex, they are then going to uh, be at risk of catching other sexually transmitted diseases. And something that the, the press have really laid into lately is the, um, is the use of PrEP. Now, PrEP is pre-exposure prophylaxis. And this is anti-HIV medicine that we can give to men who are having risky sex in order to stop them getting HIV. And people have been saying, oh, this is terrible because it means they're having unprotected sex. But the thing is, they were having unprotected sex anyway, so this is just going to stop them getting the HIV. Uh, we just need to educate them more to um, take other precautions. And as part of getting PrEP, they have to come in every few months to get a prescription, and they also get tested. So this increase is possibly just due to the fact that we're testing people more regularly. <coughs> Um, this is 2017 figures. We had four, just under 400 new cases of syphilis in Scotland. No surprise, men who had sex with men were the vast majority. Um, interestingly enough, about half of those cases were not penetrative sex. They were oral sex. Sexually transmitted diseases don't care what mucous membranes they will happily live in. doesn't matter whether it's throat or genitals. So unprotected um, oral sex is just as dangerous. Um, we don't have, most of it is primary syphilis, a few cases of secondary, uh, no cases of late latent syphilis, no cases of tertiary syphilis, and no cases of congenital syphilis. So that's very good. Part of that is due to the fact that we have an amazing NHS, and people can get tested free of charge, they don't get judged, they can get treated. But also syphilis, uh, and I'll talk about treatment in a minute, but it's very sensitive to penicillin. So... Over the course of people's lives, most of us will have a couple of courses of antibiotics for something at some point. So you go in with a chest infection, you get given some antibiotics, cures your chest infection, and as a nice little aside, it will cure the, the syphilis that's also residing in your body. So generally speaking, developed countries don't have much in the way of tertiary syphilis because it, it gets cured as a side effect of something else. Um, one of the big things when somebody is diagnosed is contact tracing. And it will come as no surprise, the more contacts you have, the harder it is to trace. If you've only slept with one person, you've got 80% chance of finding that person and then getting them treated or tested. If you're up to 10, 20 more partners, it goes down to the 20%. Um, and of course, a lot of those will be sex workers, so they're not going to keep, uh, keep a little black book of, of who they've uh, been having sex with. Now, diagnosis. Um, 
First of all, the doctor will take a full medical history. And it is a full medical history. They're not just asking you about your sexual practices. Especially with women, they'll want to know whether they've had miscarriages or stillborn babies in the past. They will do a full clinical examination. Again, it's not just genital, it'll be the whole body. And then this is where I come in, this is laboratory testing. Um, now, I'm a biomedical scientist, and I'm sure if I did a show of hands, nobody would know what a biomedical scientist is. Hey, we've got one, excellent. There are 22,000 biomedical scientists registered in the UK, and we almost all work for the NHS. Nobody knows who we are. If I say I work in the NHS, they go, oh, are you a nurse? Are you a doctor? You physiotherapist. And they'll go through everything, and nobody will ever say, do you work in a laboratory? Um, so we are like the NHS ninjas. <laughs> nobody knows we're there, but we do the job, and we get back out again. So there are three things you can do when you're looking for syphilis. You can look for the bacteria itself, and this picture is of a dark field microscopy. And this picture is in every textbook and every paper you will ever read about syphilis. I have never met anyone who's done that test. It's great, but we don't have scientists in the clinics anymore, so there's nobody trained to do that test. Um, so in reality, it doesn't get done. We can do PCR, which is a genetic test. So you break open the bacteria, you amplify up the DNA, and you can look for that. It's quite an expensive test. And the problem with looking for the bacteria is you can only do that if somebody has an active uh, ulcer and not many people actually present at that stage. So generally, we're looking for antibodies to the bacteria, and we look for those in the blood. So we can look for early response antibodies. So you have something called IgM that appears very quickly, but then disappears quite quickly. Or you can look for later response, and that's IgG. And that's antibodies that are produced later on in the course of the disease, and they do actually last a lifetime. So if you're positive for syphilis at one point, you will always be IgG positive. We can also look for damage done by the bacteria. I'll talk about those as well. Now, this is me a long time ago when I was a lot slimmer in the lab. You, you might wonder why I haven't mentioned growing it in, on agar plates, because that's what we do with 90% of the bacterial infections. We grow it up and we have a look at it. Syphilis doesn't grow on agar plates. It never has done. And that has caused some problems because if you can't grow it up easily in the laboratory, it's quite difficult to do analysis on it. So not much research has actually been done in syphilis in the laboratory. And for many, many years, the only way to grow it was to inject it into rabbit testicles. <laughs> Poor bunny. Because rabbits do have a very similar disease to syphilis. And so you inject it into the rabbit testicles. A couple of weeks later, you harvest the testicles. And um, you can take the bacteria out and have a look at it. And I did this talk a couple of years ago, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, that's a wind-up, you're not telling me about that. But if you go on to, you know, any sort of medical web-type place, you can find lots of articles on how to cultivate syphilis in rabbit testicles. So I am not making it up. Poor bennies. Uh, so serology, which is the blood test we're doing, it's... It's a complex disease, so it's no surprise that it's complex to diagnose. It's not difficult, it's just complex to, uh, to interpret whereabout in the disease you are. So we've got, we've got the IgG here that comes up and lasts for a lifetime. You've got IgM that tails off. You've got different tests that you can do. So not difficult to diagnose, but quite complex to, uh, to decipher. 
Now, the initial screening test, that's done for anybody who presents with symptoms, anyone who goes for a sexual health checkup, um, all antenatal bloods are screened for syphilis, and all blood donations are screened for syphilis. So we look for IgM and IgG so that we can get you at early or late stage. So that's quite an easy test, and a lot of it is automated nowadays. And if that's positive, your sample will get sent for further testing. So this is something called a TPA assay, um, and this is just very similar. We're just looking for antibodies again, um, but you have to do another test to confirm that the first test was right, and it always has to be a different test. Um, and we do serial dilutions. So we'll take your serum and we will dilute it into several dilutions. And that's done for two reasons. That's one, so we can get a qualitative result, so we can tell roughly how many antibodies are, are in your blood. And also, with a lot of assays, we get something called the prozone effect. So I'll try and explain this. I don't know how clear the picture is. So when we do um, a lot of tests, they're often based on agglutination. So commercially produced kits you'll get a suspension and it'll have little latex beads in it and they are coated with, in this case, microscopic bits of syphilis. So you add it to the patient's blood and if they've got antibodies in their blood, they will stick to the beads and then they will all clump together and you will see a visual clumping in the liquid. If they don't have any antibodies, they won't clump together, so it will be negative. But if somebody has a very, very high antibody level, which you will see in certain stages of the disease, there are so many antibodies that they will completely coat the latex beads so that they can't clump together. So it looks like a negative result. In actual fact, it's just too high to register. So that's one of the reasons we do a serial dilution. Uh, this is the RPR test. This is not specifically for syphilis. What this is measuring is the tissue damage that the syphilis is doing. And we use this to determine the stage of the infection. So are, is the tissue actually being broken down? And we also use it to monitor treatment. As somebody is being treated, it should go down. Uh, you may hear it called the VDRL test, which is Venereal Disease Reference Lab, which is an American term, or the Wasserman's test, which was just a slightly older version. Uh, all laboratories in the UK work to something called SMIs, which are produced by Public Health England, and that is a 22-page document, which you can look at if you like, and it tells you how to interpret the test. So there'll be all sorts of flowcharts and diagrams and what have you. Now, when I was researching this, I was quite worried to come across loads of adverts for syphilis testing. I have no idea what my Facebook page is going to be showing me in the next few weeks, because I've looked at a lot of these. And the bottom two do say for healthcare professionals only, but these are all available on Amazon. So what worries me is, hopefully I've shown you how difficult it can be to interpret the test. So if people just think they're doing a test, that's simple, positive, false positive, negative, false negative, who knows? So I was quite worried to see those um, for sale. Now, curing syphilis. I typed in how to cure syphilis into Google, which is what you do when you start in a talk like this. Out of the top eight, four of them were... I won't use the phrase alternative medicine because there's no such thing. Alternative remedies, should we say, home remedies. And by far most, the most popular was can eating raw garlic cure syphilis? Any ideas? I'm going to say no. Generally speaking, if there's any kind of headline like that that says, can this blah, 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 and there's a question, well, the answer's going to be no. You know, are they withholding a cure for cancer? No. Can I lose three stone drinking green tea? No. If the answer's always no. Although I think if you ate raw garlic before you went on a date, probably the chances of catching syphilis are going to go down quite dramatically. 
but no, of course it can't. And of course, there's all sorts of woo, acupuncture. Um, this is my favourite. This is reflexology, and you can see here there's a little bit. I don't know whether you're supposed to what you're supposed to do with it, jab it or massage it, but it it just says sex. So I, you know, it doesn't even say penis or vagina or whatever. So maybe it cures everything. Maybe erectile dysfunction, whatever. I don't know. Just sex. It's all quite close to the knee. You don't want to get those two mixed up. Uh, all sorts of herbal remedies. And everyone's favourite woo, homeopathy, which claims it can cure absolutely everything. No, it can't. Um, treatment is uh, decided by the British Association for Sexual Health and HIV. They produce, very good, again, very good website. You can go on and have a look. And they produce the BASH guidelines for treatment. Now... Previous to the um, discovery of antibiotics, there were two treatments. The first one was mercury, very unpleasant, probably did cure you syphilis, but would have killed you in the process. And then they discovered an arsenic-based compound, um, which was better, not quite as toxic, and it, you know, it was fairly effective, but a very, very unpleasant treatment. Um, but we can cure it now, that's great. So in 1943, they introduced penicillin as a cure for syphilis. Works beautifully, no problem at all. And in 2019, we're still using syphilis. So unlike a lot of other bacteria, syphilis doesn't seem to be developing any resistance to penicillin. It just seems to be intrinsically sensitive to it, which is great, absolutely great in the current climate. It's given as a very large dose, as an intramuscular injection, um, I have been led to believe it's very painful, so it's produced in uh, a solution that's got a local anaesthetic in to make it more bearable. The reason it's done as an injection is twofold. One, um, because you get better bioavailability of the drug, so it just works better. And secondly, people that have got syphilis tend to, as a group, be a little less stable in their home environment. So you may give them a course of tablets, they may not take them. So this way, at least you know that people are getting the correct treatment. If you're allergic to penicillin, there are some um, alternatives available. Uh, and in terms of antibiotic resistance, we haven't seen any in syphilis. Um, they, as I say, it's difficult to grow in the lab, so it's difficult to do the testing, but we're treating people with it and it's curing them. There is some resistance in the alternatives. If you're penicillin allergic, we're seeing resistance emerging in the other ones that we use, but basically penicillin is still working very well, which is great because some of you may have seen these news stories last year. Um, super Gonorrhea Man, who is the worst of all of the superheroes. <laughs> he, I don't know, is he DC or, or Marvel? I don't know. Um, and he caught syphilis from um, going on holiday to Asia, and he did not have penetrative sex. He had oral sex, and he caught genital syphilis from that. Um, so please be careful. And finally, prevention. Um, there is no vaccine against syphilis, and there are two reasons for that. One is, um, no. well, basically, we don't have a big incidence in the developed world, so there really isn't any demand for it, and the money for vaccination is going into HIV vaccine, malaria vaccine, so it's just we don't have the demand for it. Although there are 10 million people across the world with syphilis, the money is all in the countries where we don't have it. So the thing to do is get tested. We are very, very lucky in the UK and, and Scotland. We have the health service. You can go to your doctor. You can walk into a sexual health clinic. Nobody will judge you. If you go to a sexual health clinic, you'll get an anonymised number, so they don't even care what your name is. 
free condoms. You don't even have to go and buy them. You walk into any sexual health clinic, say, can I have some condoms, please? And they'll just give you a whole load of them. Nobody's going to judge you. Nobody's going to charge you for it. And finally, as I say, maybe chewing garlic will prevent you getting syphilis, but that's probably not the best thing to rely on. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity, and if you enjoyed today's show, head over to rcpe.ac.uk backslash heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.